Welcome to The Real Deal, Mind, Spirit, and Body, Episode 3, featuring Dr. David Granoff and Dr. Mark Kalina, produced by Kalinoff Productions. Welcome back to another episode of The Real Deal, or how regular folk like you and I can stand up against the propaganda of the medical industrial complex. How does that sound? Uh, you like that one? That's good. All right, I like that too. So we last uh, episode, we talked about your background, and particularly uh, your educational background, and then your work with death and dying. And that led us into some uh, conversation about relationships and connection, and really how to fight back and what to pay attention to. It really is, from my vantage point, the wisdom of the ages that we've forgotten. This is not new stuff. This is, my mother used to, my mother used to tell me, get a good night's sleep, you'll do better on a test. Well, you know what, she was right. My mother used to say, you'll be happier if you have friends and relationships. And you know what, she was right. That, and she did not go to a, get a doctorate. She knew that because that, that was the wisdom of humanity speaking. And we have lost that somewhat. So, my, my educational background was a little less direct than yours. I went to to private school. I went to university school in Cleveland. That's where we were rivals and met each other many years ago, 40 years ago, as uh, opponent point guards on the basketball team. And um, then, uh, and I too had a wonderful educational experience, making good friends, being really taught how to think, not always getting good grades because they didn't give us just good grades for you know, doing the work. You had to really figure things out back then. And so I think I got out of there with like an 83 average, and I was darn proud of that. Yeah. Nowadays, I suspect all the, most of the grades are elevated and that that isn't so common, that if you do a decent amount of work and you work hard, you're probably going to be rewarded with an A because now you can't tell the difference between a kid who works really hard and a kid who doesn't because all the grades are elevated. And they do that because of the college thing, which is another topic we should talk about at some point. So I went to university school for, for, uh, for high school, and then I went to the University of Michigan for college, which was, it took me, I mean, it was a tough adjustment. It was demanding, but I will tell you, it wasn't as demanding as high school. I did not have to work as hard at Michigan as I did in high school. But I learned, and I made good friends, and I had a great football team to root for with Bo Schembechler back in the day and then Lloyd Carr. And it used to be really fun to live in Ohio and talk trash with people about the Michigan-Ohio State game. But now all my friends just feel sorry for me, so it's, it's not so much fun anymore. So I, I, I don't do that anymore. And in fact, our producer is one of them who, who uh, bought me an Ohio State sweatshirt after the last game and laughed at me. So thank you, Doug. So from there, I didn't know what I wanted to do. And one of the, the downsides of growing up in privilege was that it seemed like we had um, multiple choices or, or, or maybe an infinite amount of choices. And I did not know how to make an adult choice. So all of my friends were going to law school and I took the law exam and I did pretty well and I got into a good law school. I went to Duke Law School. And uh, I thought, well, I guess I'm going to be a lawyer. Then I uh, went down to Duke, and by the way, with a girlfriend in tow, which uh, at 22 years old or 23 years old wasn't such a smart idea. 
And I sat in the initial classes, and they said, one of the deans said to us, you've all chosen to be lawyers. And I got sick to my stomach and almost threw up. (laughs) (laughs) That was a marker that I may have made the wrong decision. But I was stubborn and determined, and I made it through the year, not happy at all, and uh, passed all my classes. I was about in the middle of the class, and at the end of the year, I dropped out of school. And I wrote a a nasty young man letter to the administration that I got to imagine they laughed at in retrospect, and I dropped out. And my father was enraged at me because he knew that graduating from Duke was going to ensure something good for my life in terms of success, in terms of money, in terms of power, in terms of prestige, and he was, he could not believe I gave that opportunity up. In fact, I don't think he completely forgave me until I, years later, finally got my doctorate. Then he was, uh, then, then, then I think he forgave all my transgressions. And it's like the, uh, the old joke is, when is a Jewish fetus viable? Have you heard this one? No. When he or she graduates from medical school. So, <laughs> so that's, right. that's the, that, the, the house I grew up in. So I, I came back and I got into therapy after dropping out in Cleveland and I got into the restaurant business and I made great friends in the restaurant business, just wonderful people that I, I just would never have been exposed to otherwise. Waiters and bartenders and people that didn't go to private school. And I learned a tremendous amount from them. And I also got to begin to act like an adult, quitting jobs on a whim and then feeling panicked because how was I going to pay the rent? and all these kind of things. Oh, let me, let me double back because this is, I think, an important one too. At the end of college, my father said to me, he said he was so proud of me, which I appreciated. He said I really worked hard and I earned this prestigious degree, and he was happy for me too. And then he looked at me and says, but I'm happier for myself. And I said, why is that, Dad? And he says, because now I'm not paying for another damn thing. It's all on you. And I was like, whoa, well, fine, you be that way. And that really began to orient me in the world in a way that I hadn't been oriented up until then. So I came back and I worked different jobs. I worked at a place called Hands and Cookers and in a jazz club. And I really, I had a really interesting and great time. And then I decided, I got into therapy and I decided I wanted to be a therapist. I thought that really would fit who I was. And uh, so I applied to schools. I got into one in New York called Yeshiva University, which... For those of you who don't know, I always say it's like the Jewish Notre Dame. It was in the Bronx at Einstein Medical School, and uh, I went off to New York at a 27 years old with uh, all my belongings in my car, and it's kind of like, golly gee, here we go, and boy was I in for an awakening. Holy cow, was I overwhelmed, and uh, you know, because I thought I was a pretty likable guy, but you know, New York didn't care so much about that, and it was, it was overwhelming and I was anxious and I was depressed and here was another seminal moment in my education. I found a therapist through a guy that I knew and I liked him. I liked him because he was smart, I could tell right away, and he wouldn't put up with bullshit, which I was very, I was very, people call me charming all the time when I was a younger man. So charming is just another word for bullshitter and this guy wouldn't, wouldn't be fooled by my bullshit. And so I felt like for the first time in my life, I was seen clearly, not with all my machinations of of defending myself and protecting myself. I was seen 
And one day I was in his office my first year of grad school, and I said to him, I think I actually whined to him, I said, this is overwhelming to me. This is, I've got to go to school during the day, and I've got to work nights as a bartender, and waiting tables, and I'm tired all the time, and I'm overwhelmed, and I'm scared, and I don't have any confidence that I can do this. And I remember in that moment waiting for him to tell me what my mother would have told me, which was, you'll do fine. You're smart. You're blah, blah, blah. Give me the old pep talk. But he didn't give me a pep talk. He said to me, with sitting placidly, he said to me, well, David, I guess you'll have to do what you have to do without confidence. And I felt enraged. I wanted to jump across the room and strangle this old man. And I looked at him, and I, my, my temple was throbbing, and my, my throat was clenched, and my, I'm sure my lips were pursed. pursed and, uh, and I looked at him, and he just was sitting there placidly with a little grin on his face, and I'm, I'm, the, the emotions were intense. And I sat there breathing, and I thought, this motherfucker, this motherfucker. And then as I started to calm down, I started to realize, well, what would I do if I did drop out of school because it was too hard for me? And I said, well, I could go back to Cleveland. And I could sell cars. I could live with my parents. I could work in restaurants. None of those ideas appealed to me. And if you remember, I already left law school. And I thought, this would be just like law school. And so in that moment, after I calmed down, I decided I was going to stick it out. And it was not an easy task, but a well worthwhile task. I worked at Bellevue Hospital in the forensic unit, which was maybe we'll have stories about that someday. I, I worked at Montefiore Medical Center. I worked at a place called the Postgraduate Analytic Institute. The program was four years plus a year of internship. And I graduated in 1992. Then got a job in New York. Fast forward, moved back to Cleveland, found a woman and got married and have three kids and, and I'm raising them and working in private practice for over 20 years. And what I would say is that that moment in that chair where I wanted to kill my therapist was the seminal moment of my life. Wow. It changed the direction. It was no longer going to be okay for me to take the easy way out. Wow. And I, I think I, I often feel like when we are doing our work, that we are, we are and we're present, as fully present as we can be, and we're paying attention, and we're aware that we become, and this goes to your spiritual ideas, we become, we channel, we channel something, uh, uh, an intelligence greater than ours. I don't know what you want to call that. But I'll say things to people, once I'm in that space with them, that I could never think of on my own. And it's, it seems to be when that happens, it's right on. And that's when I know that not only am I connected to myself, am I connected with the person that's in my office, then I'm also connected to some higher intelligence, and I'm, I'm a conduit for them. So it's powerful stuff. And I have to thank Tom Levin. He's been deceased for about eight years now. But Tom Levin was the man who really gave me a chance in an adult life. And a and great many of the people I work with now are young men who are having a very hard time moving out in the world and assuming responsibility for themselves and making an adult life. So that's pretty profound and goes with, I would say, the main <coughs> spiritual teaching is about oneness versus separation. And when you feel it one and with your clients, it, and I feel this, I get this, this is what 
drive me in, in all the work I do, and that's why I can't see a lot of people a day, because I want, I'm my best when I'm one with that person, and to be fully one with someone. So you and I are going to use a different, little different language, because I'm not quite as spiritual as right, you are. Right. We've joked, the two of us, that your head is in the clouds and my feet are on the ground, yes. but I, I'm going to say when we're fully present. Right. Fully present. Yeah. And connected. Yeah. And you're calling it one, I'm calling it fully present. And how do you choose that in a therapist? How do you find that in a therapist? I have found, or a, or a physician for that matter. Did you tell the story on any of these about how come you quit Scripps Clinic? Uh, well, I quit three times. Oh, you quit three times. <laughs> Sorry, he's, he's also... He's also been separated from his wife three or four times, too. No, but so six or seven. Six or seven. So, right? So, life is not simple, no. and we are not telling you that we have it all figured out. Yeah. But let me tell you what I know about it. I know he quit the last time because they were, how many minutes per person were they giving you? Ten, ten, to, ten to 15. Ten to 15 minutes. I've talked to other physicians that get seven minutes. Yeah. And I've talked to other physicians that said... They can't think in seven minutes. Right. Specialists are yeah. seven. Yeah. Yeah. And so how can you really be connected and really understand the person in seven minutes or 12 minutes or 15 minutes? You really can't. Yeah. So you now work for the Pacific Pearl. Is that what it's called? Yeah. Pacific Pearl in, in La Jolla, California, in which you see how many people a day? I would say my average is two to five. Two to five people a day. And the reason is people want to see my boss. She's famous, she's a cardiologist, she's president of the American Board of Integrative Medicine, so she's a character in the world. She's our draw, and I get to sit in the background and do all the other things that she doesn't do, And but I, the, for me, the main thing I do is when someone wants to be go deep or be connected or re, really is in pain, that's when I want to help them. And I am a therapist wannabe. I, I, didn't, I don't have a degree other than college in psychology, but it's what I've spent my life really studying. Along with spirituality, I think it's psycho-spiritual. And again, being, being one, because that's what empathy is, and that's what connection is, and can be healing for people. And, and right, there are always solutions, and we need plans, and we need medicine sometimes, and we need... A lot of things, but I think all healings comes out of connection and, and want what I call oneness. So, what I'm going to tell the, the uh, audience, hopefully there's an audience, right? Yeah, right? Is, I met one of your success stories yesterday. Wow. A woman who came to you with a history of, of physical injuries, significant. She had been a rugby player in college, and she had gone from doctor to doctor to doctor. And they had her on all kinds of opioids because the pain was excruciating for her. And she kept telling these doctors that they wanted to get off the opioids. And no doctor really took her seriously in that way. And she ended up somehow in your office. And she told me, that the Reader's Digest version, she told me that you had healed her by getting her off the opioids and teaching her other ways to manage the pain. So, but from your perspective, how did you heal her? Because she actually said, you saved her life. She's an incredible character. And she, I think, had a lot of trauma in her youth. And when I met her, she was on huge dose narcotics. 
just managing, and she had, it was, there, it wasn't like she had one pain in her knee or her, her hip, she had pain everywhere, and, and so that's when I knew it was way deeper than, than a usual body injury, and we spent a, we spent a ton of time, we leased hours really per week, it was a, it was, it took over a, a year, took maybe two, maybe closer to two years, and she came all the way off a narcotic, she got off of other medicines which were trying to calm and sedate her, and she learned to feel her feelings and she learned to express herself, and she is an incredible force. She's got a great job, she's, a, she's an incredible person. She's very real and honest, and and still knows them. I mean, it's not like it's over. She she can slide down the the dark place, but we have a connection, and I I think we'll be connected forever. And and it was out of presence, out of just being with whatever she came with. And sometimes it was rage, and sometimes it was sadness, and always it was some form of fear and shame and oh, so many things. And I listened, and I cared about her as much as at an ongoing level and that includes I mean for in medicine it's not just set a point and for me that's what the new model is is you're you're available 24 7 and it's texting and it's email and it's phone gotta be there for somebody and that's the real <clears throat> primary care and but who can do that who could be available? I mean, you, you clearly, from the horse's mouth, you saved her life. But, but this was not an easy fix. Matter of fact, this wasn't a fix, was it? It was a relationship that you built by heavily investing over time. It was not fast, nor, nor was it, did, you, did you monetize it the way that the medical industrial complex is oriented to monetize the work. And, of course, there's the old saying, right, the... Uh, with those who hold the purse strings make the decisions well nowadays that's the insurance companies that's the hospitals that's whoever is holding the purse strings and so I, I do think typical medicine is if they're figuring out algorithms to just fix give someone a, a medicine give someone something so that they can get them in and out as fast as possible and I work with a lot of physicians in my practice that are miserable because they're no longer allowed the space and time to make the connection with their clients. Because most of the people that go into medicine, they, they really do want to care and help people. And they're feeling like they cannot. But the model you're proposing is not a big money maker. I mean, that, is, that doesn't support the big industrial complex. No. So, so people, what, what you're suggesting to me, is people have to begin to risk and be willing to look outside the typical medical industrial complex model. Just to, most of my, many of my best clients are the ones who have gone through the model and know it doesn't work for them. Right. And when they find me, it's a different thing for them and, and they're ready to invest. And since I'm going to invest too, then it's a different kind of relationship. Yeah, the... The current medical industrial complex, that model, which is an incredible business, arguably the best business on the planet, the sickness of humans, and it's, yeah, it's not really 
healing. It's not really for people. It's not really... No, it's not, is it? it I mean, it's, it's for appendicitis, and, and you could even say for heart attacks or strokes, but it's not, it's not healing at the level that you, you went through when you dropped out of law school. And took time, and which I'm, I was just sharing your story. I mean, that was four years actually. That wasn't that was you were in the trough, and you had, and we, that was a whole healing time that allowed you to bloom later. And that's what I, I mean. And you know got, that you know that because I lived with you for yeah. one or two of those yeah. years. Yeah, mm-hmm. it was it was that was not a pinnacle experience. Yeah, and I would say, right? I mean, I think. Being with someone when they're in the trough, that's the only way to get through. And I'm not here to say, I, I have a young man who killed himself or did a heroin OD, and I worked with him, with him, and so it's not like I'm divine or Jesus or any kind of healer, but I do believe that healing comes out of relationship and the connection and, and fully being there for someone. And what is fully being there? It's so, just different, it's always different. So that, presence. yes, so, so my, my mentor and therapist, the New York guy who I told you about earlier, his name was Tom Levin. He actually was a remarkable man. He was trained in part by Theodore Reich. Theodore Reich was trained in part by Sigmund Freud. Hmm. So I always feel ex- an excitement when I say that because I, what's three degrees of separation to Freud for me, which thrills me. Cause, so, but having said that, Tom also was born in the 20s and went through the Depression as a youngster and got involved with union work very early in his life. And in the 60s, when the Head Start program be, uh, became, got off the ground in the federal government, he went down to start it in Mississippi. Wow. This guy was incredible. They tried to kill him. They tried to kill him. He told me a couple stories. Maybe I'll share it another time. Um, he's, written, he's written in a book. I don't think this book is still published, but... Uh, called The Devil Has Slippery Shoes. And there's a whole chapter on him starting the Head Start program in Mississippi. And then the government of Mississippi going after him and and having him removed by the federal government. And I remember the uh, story he told about being brought up before Congress and being accused of all kinds of nefarious deeds. Hmm. And and he broke down crying because he said, I didn't know what to do and I really felt hurt because all I wanted to do was help. And they were accusing me of all these nefarious deeds and when I started crying he said just weeping they stopped attacking me and they said clearly I was just I was a good man I was just inept and they didn't press charges but they fired me he said I could live with being considered inept and so he was remarkable but he's he's the one that really taught me my craft Uh, there were others but he was the primary one and I don't know why I went off on that tangent but uh, but oh this is why he told me when I was getting ready to leave him he said to me, David, you'll always be able to make a living at this as long as you offer people genuine, authentic connection because our culture is desperate for it. And I think he was right. I think that's enough for one episode. <laughs> <laughs>